today as we continue our series in the book of John. I'm, I'm going to uh, read from John chapter 9 again and read the rest of the story. So starting with John 1, it says, As he went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. This is why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become one of his disciples too? <laughs> then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes? We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. No one has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. 
tell me so that I might believe in him. And Jesus said, you have seen him. You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. You could stop right there. <laughs> After Jesus heals the man born blind from birth, a controversy breaks out. Did somebody really get healed who was blind from birth? It's unbelievable to them. Is this the same guy who used to sit and beg on the corner? Some of the people in the neighborhood said yes. Some of the people in the neighborhood said no, it can't be him. But the man who was healed said, I am the man. I got healed. How, they asked. The man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes, told me to wash in the pool of Siloam, and after a good rinsing, I could see. Where is this guy named Jesus, the fair, they asked. I don't know the man who was, said the man who was healed. Those who did the initial interrogation at that point felt they were in over their heads. So they called in the big guns. They called in the Pharisees to investigate. How had this man received his sight, the Pharisees asked. A man made a mud pack, put it on my eyes, and now I see. To which the Pharisees responded, he worked on the Sabbath. He violated our rules. How dare he heal blind people with a mud pack on Saturday? Actually, Jesus violated the Sabbath laws in three ways when he healed that man, according to the Pharisees. First, he made mud. That was considered work. In fact, back then, you could spit on a rock on the Sabbath, but not dirt. Because if you spit on dirt, it made mud, and mud was working. Second, it was a sin to heal on the Sabbath. For instance, if somebody broke a leg on the Sabbath, you could keep them the leg from getting worse, but you could not put it in a splint or reset it because that too was work. And third, Jesus used medicine on the Sabbath. Spit was considered a type of medicine in those days. And there was absolutely no medicine making on the Sabbath. You could drool, but you could not spit. That too was work. But the Pharisees were divided. Some said, how could a sinner perform such a sign? Again, the Pharisees questioned the man. Who do you think this guy was that healed you? And the healed man said, I don't really know much about him, but I think he's a prophet. Eh, wrong answer, the Pharisees said. This guy wasn't really blind from birth and healed. No way, some of the Pharisees said. Bring in his parents. We'll settle it that way. And they brought in his parents and they said, is this your kid? Was he blind? What's the explanation for his sight? And the parents said, he is our son. And he is the one that was blind, and now he can see, but we don't know nothing else. The parents obviously were afraid to rejoice at their son's healing because they were afraid of being excommunicated from the temple and considered no longer true citizens of Israel. So they continued asking, and the parents said, look, ask him. He's a big boy. So they did, to which the healed man replied, whether... The man that healed me as a sinner or not, this one thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. To which the Pharisees said, say what? The healed man said, I already told you the facts of the case. Are you asking all these questions because you want to follow Jesus too? Is this why you're so interested? That did not go over well. They said, we follow Moses, not Jesus. We don't know who this Jesus is. To which the healed man said, how can you not know 
about a man who heals the blind. God wouldn't do this for an evil man. No one's ever done this before. He's from God. He has to be. And that's how he, and at that point, that was how the healed man got excommunicated from the temple. It's also the reason he got saved. Because Jesus was not finished helping this man. It says later, Jesus went hunting for this man and he found him because Jesus knew his work wasn't done. There was spiritual sight to restore too. So Jesus found the man and said, do you believe in the son of man? And the guy said, I, I, I don't know. And Jesus said, look, I'm the guy that healed you. I'm the son of man. And it said he, he worshiped Jesus right then and there. Now, John indicates, the man born blind from birth could really see. That's our mission, or the great commission to the world, isn't it? To help people really see. To help people find Jesus, the Jesus who is already looking for them. We are the witnesses of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But after Jesus left, he said, you are the light of the world. And by the way, witnessing is not a verb it's a noun. It's who we are, whether we're conscious of it or not. If we are in Christ, we are the light of the world, whether we live up to it or not. We may put our light under a bushel basket, but we are still the light of the world. We may not choose to share Christ, but we are witnesses nevertheless. The question for all of us this morning is, are we conscious and acting out our true identities as bearers of the light. You are a witness. That who's, who God made you to be when you followed Jesus. You can't say, well, I don't do X, Y, and Z. It doesn't matter. You're a witness. We have so screwed up witnessing in the last 70 or 80 years. We have turned witnessing into a verb, not a noun. An activity, a program, a way of getting people to do what we should be doing naturally. A lot of these methods make Christians, by the way, feel awkward. And the people they're witnessing to feel worse. There is something wrong when giving the good news feels bad. So today I want to talk about how we can be witnesses like the New Testament church was. The first priority in bringing the light of the world is opening our hearts wide to the Spirit who indwells us. You know, you are inhabited by the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. This is called prayer. Let me tell you something that will relieve the pressure from some of you. It is Jesus' job to save people, not ours. The New Testament church did not have overhead projectors or musical instruments or nice buildings or good Sunday school curriculum. It didn't have 30 different programs for bringing people to Christ. What they had was Jesus. Jesus manifested through the Spirit, accessed by prayer. And prayer is why they had power, a power that turned the world upside down. We do not build the kingdom of God. Jesus does. If you can, or I build a church using our energy and our efforts, it's not a church worth having. We have to understand salvation isn't ours to give. It's Christ's. All the work of the kingdom begins and ends with him. Human action only touches the surface of things. Again, quoting Ben Patterson. He said, what if we really believed we were in the midst of a raging spiritual battle 
in which the stakes, the territory being fought over, is none other than ourselves and the people around us. What confidence would we place then in our organizational charts, our lines of accountability and authority, our budget reports, and plans for the Labor Day picnic? My hunch is that we'd all be too frightened not to pray. We'd all be foxhole Christians fighting for life or death right in front of us. We must learn that prayer is our chief work. The simple truth alone, that simple truth alone explains why so many people in the church find themselves exhausted, stretched to the breaking point, and burned out. And this fact explains the paradox of prayer, that only where we give up our human efforts can God's work begin. And mysteriously, human effort can come to fulfillment. Before we speak for Jesus, we better speak with Jesus, don't you think? Too much, far too much witnessing in the past has depended on human invention, not on the power of the Holy Spirit. What does it look like? What does witnessing really look like? Look at the text today. It starts with the fact that Jesus was walking through the masses of people in Jerusalem and he saw a man blind from birth. When Jesus was walking through Jerusalem, he saw that man as a divine appointment. You know, Jesus said, I, I never do anything unless my father tells me to do it. So that means if Jesus saw this man and went to this man, he felt the spirit of his father say to him, go to that man and heal him. He listened to the instructions from his father. This happened again and again to Jesus as he stayed perfectly in tune with the spirit. Jesus is out in the world right now preparing hearts. Did you know that? He's not waiting for us. He's not waiting for our programs. Jesus is out there touching people. Often they don't recognize it, but he's ahead of us. Our goal is to listen and discover where and with him he is working. God has assignments for us all. Where we are, at work, in our neighborhoods, in our social networks, who is the Spirit calling you to pray for? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever asked Him? Your prayers and your relationship with that person may be the only link with God that is possible at this point in time. Who do you feel drawn to? Who do you like? What is, what is Christ nudging you to do? It doesn't matter if you're a parent or a coach or a manager or a social worker. When the Spirit gives you a nudge, are you obeying? Because one well-timed word of encouragement can open the door and let the future in in somebody's life. One nudge obeyed can change the plot line in a person's life for eternity. One of the reasons we pray in private is that so that we can feel God's nudges in public, at school or the office or the factory. In the book, uh, Good Faith, uh, no, I don't want to say that. I'm going to keep going. <laughs> so pray. Witnessing is a profound spiritual enterprise. It needs to be spirit-led. We need to feel God's burdens and assignments put on our heart. We need to be open to the nudges that can lead to divine appointments. If we're truly open to the Holy Spirit, we won't have to come looking for opportunities. 
we'll, we will find that God makes appointments for us and doors will open by his power where we are because Jesus is already out in the world saving it. Let's join him. Or let me put it another way. If you come to a door, in some, you know, the, the door of someone's heart, and you find it's locked, move on. Because when the Spirit moves, the doors open. He'll open the doors into that person's life. You know, for too long, we have looked at evangelism as kicking in the door. That's not what you do. You wait for the Spirit to open the door and you walk in. If working with someone, loving someone, if they're not ready, stop. It's the Spirit's job to get them ready, not for you to overpower them and be obnoxious. It is not our job to make someone's heart soft. If the doors aren't open, you pray for God until the doors do open because it's not supposed to be hard. Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and he means that for witnessing too. If you feel like you're swimming up Niagara Falls, something is wrong. The second aspect of New Testament witnessing is that Jesus uses who you are as well as where you are. We must infiltrate this world without a lot of fanfare. We live in a secular world now that thinks being uh, somebody talking to them, you know, uh, about Jesus in specific ways often is simply the signs of someone being a fanatic. As a matter of fact, you know, my son lives in Norway. And um, in Norway, if you walk up to someone and testify in public about Jesus Christ, you are considered mentally ill right there on the spot. Things are headed that way, folks. As a matter of fact, what I'm saying is that we act and we infiltrate and we become, you know, God's Navy SEAL. Excuse me, I'm an Anabaptist. But God's Navy SEAL infiltrating. This is vital because the latest statistics say that 60% of the American populace will never, ever come to a church service. 60%. And that's getting worse. It means we have to join with, with, to, with Jesus out there as he reaches people where they are. Our attitude cannot, can no longer be, let's get them to church and get them saved. We're going to have to go to them in today's world, which was actually Jesus' idea from the start. Jesus didn't say, come to Jerusalem and make disciples. He said, you go into all the world and you make disciples. God has given us all spiritual gifts. And these gifts are to be used inside and outside the church. For instance, if you have a gift of mercy, don't just use it around Christians. Use it at the office. If you have the gift of encouragement, unleash it down, you know, at the neighborhood diner with one of your neighbors. If you have the gift of faith, ask one of your non-Christian friends if they want prayer in a time of crisis and see what happens, especially if God answers the prayer miraculously. You talk about doors flying open, but be yourself. You have been wired by God to have a certain personality, certain gifts, certain experiences. Almost everything about you can be harnessed and put to use for the Lord. Gabe Lyons, who wrote the book Good Faith, gave examples of Christians changing the world through ordinary channels on this planet. And he gave a list. He said, 
Jim talks about Jesus in natural and forced ways with his house painting customers in Seattle. Jeff teaches high school students in Denver to love C.S. Lewis. And guess what that leads to? Ruth brings her faith to work styling clients' hair in Edinburgh, Scotland. She's a really good listener, and through time, people really open up to her. Simon and Marianne adopted two kids with learning and behavioral difficulties near London, England, to show the love of Christ to those kids. Lori lives and works among Muslims in places she cannot divulge. Josh has developed a reputation in Phoenix for encouraging his fellow college students to pray and study the scriptures with new eyes. Jessica helps young families reimagine their quality time together in Boston. Probably a lot of us need to reimagine what quality time looks like. In Sydney, Australia, Mike supports Christians enduring persecution in places where being a Christian isn't just extreme or irrelevant, but illegal. Jill is, in the, school, is the school sports photographer and prayer supporter. She prays for that school. It's her assignment and she, while she's raising three Jesus-loving kids in Ventura, California. Rebecca is shaping three young souls, too, and writes books in Nashville, Tennessee. All of these people and millions more are faithfully doing the thing that the Lord has put them in front of, whether big or small or in between, regardless of whether they get credit or not. They are light in their community. They are shining where they are. Plus, these stories illustrate one other thing. Obedience does not have to be big or spectacular. Small acts of kindness and faithfulness get multiplied by the Spirit. Doesn't the feeding of the 5,000 show us that over and over? Never devalue small. Big doors turn on small hinges. Have you noticed? Tugboats turn tankers. Small acts of kindness and faithfulness can win battles and soften hearts. In such ways, the world has changed when millions of Christians use their gifts and personality outside as well as inside the church right where they are. You are the front line. You are the front line. And by the way, there, there are other ways to do this too. I, I just mentioned individual things. But many churches have dis discovered that, that uh, if you gather people together and around a common interest, and include evangelism as part of that, that often sell evangelism really is effective. Peyton Jones in his book, Reaching the Unreached, Becoming Raiders of the Lost Art. I like that. He, they use cell groups creatively to evangelize. And here, he, let me read what he says. These cell groups form around all kinds of subjects in order to win people to Christ. They form around anything he said, we had people who liked films, so they started a film critics club at their church. And they started by using film, the film I Am Legend. Remember I Am Legend with Will Smith? A plague infects the earth. Everybody turns into zombies. If you ask me, we do not have enough zombie television shows and movies. We need more zombies. He said, the movie scared the pants off of me. Yet it was laced with signposts of redemption. The movie opens with a shot of an old poster on a brick wall reading, God has not abandoned us. By the way, often, often Hollywood takes the battle between good and evil a whole lot more seriously than we do. 
And it ends with a guy sacrificing him. Will Smith sacrificing himself for humanity after screaming, I can save you with the blood. Come on. How can you not launch into the gospel after that? The only thing that would have come easier is if a chariot pulled up in the middle of the desert and an Ethiopian asked you to explain Isaiah 53 to him. He said, in our church, we had two professional chefs. So a group kicked off uh, a group that taught single moms how to cook healthy food. And then he said, and we had college students in our church who were addicted to Halo. So we used that and we started Halo, Halo tournaments in our community. And he said, don't laugh. He said, more people got saved from that Halo community than anything else we tried. By the way, Jess Stoll, who works for uh, InterVarsity at, at Hack, he was at, when he was at Penn State, he said one of the most effective things we did to win, bring college students to Jesus was we started a Halo club. You know how they greet each other? They say, Halo. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but he says this. The key to effective evangelism was allowing people to be and do what they really were. Be themselves. Once we started doing church like this, we started finding out ways that people could be used in their passions. Jesus specifically placed the hand-picked combinations of gifts perfectly formatted to your calling. Everything about you, he says, can be harnessed and put to use for the Lord. Even your personality and for some of you, that will surprise you. You are shy. You, you are afraid to talk to anybody. But shy people often are better evangelists than loud, talkative people because they're good listeners and they're not intimidating. It's a big myth that loud people make the best evangelists. So I'm going to whisper. Your passions matter. Your hobbies matter because you have been wired for mission the way you are. We've been told for too long that hobbies are just idols that get in the way. But the Bible redeems hobbies for us if we turn them over to Jesus. I've joked for years that I am golfing for Jesus. But I'm, I've realized golf is a holy thing. And when the weather warms up, I'm going to go worship. <laughs> Which leads us to point three. Learn to love and value who God loves and values. See people not just as lost sinners, which they are, or broken in some way, which they are, but what they can be when they are redeemed. Appreciate the raw material. The most important thing in forming a relationship with someone is that that person believes you like them. You know, too often we go, uh, you're a leper and I don't want to touch you, but I'm here for Jesus. That kills a relationship. Appreciate the raw material. You know, I'm fascinated by physics and the, and the universe. Pastor Cedra will love this because I killed one Wednesday night with this. But I love the beauty and the majesty of the universe. I admire, when I see God's handiwork, it makes me want to say how great thou art. You know, it, let me tell you one thing. We don't have an idea of what makes up 95% of the universe. Did you know that? 
70% of it is made up with something called dark energy. Nobody knows what it is. The best scientists in the world don't know what it is. Which is why it didn't go one Wednesday night when I tried to explain what it is. It didn't go well. 25% of the universe is something made up called dark matter. And guess what? Nobody knows what it is. Only 5% of the universe is made up of things we call molecules and atoms and energy. There is so much we don't know. We'll probably spend eternity just getting to understand God's handiwork. It's fascinating. It's wonderful. And I feel the same way when I visit and counsel people. Each person is so unique. Each person reflects in some small way the creativity of God's magnificent mind and heart. You, everyone we run into is a wonder. Even in their fallen states, we need to value people, love them where they are, and like them where they are, and go from there. Remember that each individual you meet, and this is scientific fact, as, as vast and wonderful as the universe is, each individual you meet is more complex than the rest of the universe put together. Or as C.S. Lewis put, put it, every person we see is no mere mortal. You are looking at an infinite being who, if you saw them in their redeemed and glorified states, you would be tempted to worship. Love people. Value them. Pray for what they can be in Christ. And one of the main ways you love, while I'm on love, is you listen to people. Find out what makes them tick. Listening may be more effective in unlocking someone's heart than anything else other than prayer and the Spirit. Let people tell you where they hurt. Let them tell you what gets their juices going. Let them tell you their needs. Let them tell you what they love. If you listen, people will give you a roadmap to their hearts, and you'll know where to start praying and where doors might be opening. I read uh, that one hairstyling school teaches its students, after it teaches its students to cut hair and do perms and all that stuff, after they're done with the technical stuff, they bring in a psychologist to teach them the art of listening. Because in the end, it's the relationship with the hairstylist that will matter more than just exactly how she cuts your hair unless somebody butchers it like they did with Pastor Linda at one time. <laughs> everybody's looking at your hair <laughs> stop looking at her hair <laughs> finally Paul wrote when you go through this whole process be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you nobody will argue anyone to heaven did you know that you can't shout someone to heaven you can't angry someone to heaven and many are intimidated are intimidated to engage people in discussions about God because they feel inadequate to the task. You see, they say to themselves, I don't know enough theology. I didn't go to seminary. I'm not a professional. Good. I can't answer the deep questions people have about human suffering. Let me give you something else that may give you a little relief. Don't worry about what you don't know. Tell people what you do know. Use what you have and give it to the Holy Spirit so the Holy Spirit can multiply it. 
Homer and Emmy Lou were courting on the front porch swing, obviously down in Virginia. Now, Homer was very much in love with the beautiful Emmy Lou. However, he was shy and often had difficulty mustering up the courage to express his love. So aware of his inability, he copied other people. And he tried to express his affection with these flowery words. Emmy Lou, if I had a thousand eyes, they would all be looking at you. That's gross. Emmy Lou, if you had a thousand arms, they would all be hugging you. Emmy Lou, if you had a thousand lips, they would all be kissing you. Emmy Lou looked over at Homer and replied, Homer, stop complaining about what you don't have and start using what you do have. Pucker up, pucker up. <laughs> That's God's word for us today. Don't worry about all the arms and eyes and stuff you don't have. Pucker up and use those two lips God gave you. Because when it comes to witnessing, anyone can give their testimony. The man who was healed from blindness simply told his story. He had no theology. He didn't really even know who he was dealing with. He really didn't know who Jesus was for most of this story. But he could say, I was blind, but now I see and I know Jesus did it. That's what I know. And he knew that Jesus had performed an extraordinary miracle. When we speak from personal experience, there is no argument that can deny what you've experienced. Did you know that? I love this uh, story. Some of you have heard it before. But it's about a man who'd been known around town as a reprobate and a drunk. But then Jesus Christ came into his life and saved him. Christ changed him completely, completely, and turned his life around. His co-workers down at the factory noticed the change in him. And of course, it unsettled them, and they tried to tease him and shake him and challenge his faith. Surely you don't buy all that stuff in the Bible about miracles, do you? They said to him. Surely you don't really believe Jesus turned water into wine, do you? And the man said, whether he turned water into wine or not, I don't know. I wasn't there, but I know this. In my own life and in my own house, I have seen him turn beer into furniture. I've seen him turn whiskey into food. I've seen him turn tears into laughter. I've seen him turn an alcoholic into a father and husband who adores his family. I don't know much, but I know that. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. Pray for people. Love people. Listen to people. Obey the Spirit and walk through the doors He opens. Listen to the nudges. Be yourself. And when it comes time to talk, if you can't think of anything else, tell your story and leave the rest up to God. He'll do the saving. We're just assisting. So often, what I've just talked about, we totally get it in reverse order. We start talking to people about God before they're ready, before we've prayed for them, before any relationship is developed, before anything, the doors open. We get the order reversed. The order is pray, walk with the Spirit, be sensitive to the Spirit, form relationships, be ready to give an answer, not give the answer and we'll see what else happens. 
God saves people in such ways. He saves people, especially in the culture we have now, through the underground movement in this world that doesn't know what it really needs anymore. Let us do it God's way. Because again, I'll say this, God's way is organic, it is natural, it is not hard. In fact, it's exciting. When you see God moving and God using you and God, God opening the door, it gets your juices going. That's what we need to remember. Let, it, let us do it the way the New Testament did it. Now, were there times when people got saved stone cold, you know, out of, of course. And there may be times in your life where the Spirit says, you don't know this person and da-da-da, but give them a word. There may be that time. And sometimes people are saved that way. But the vast majority of the time, we are going to have to pray, listen, love, and then let God open doors to people's hearts. Amen? Amen? I will end this sermon with what I said in, somewhere in this sermon, which is, who is God putting on your heart? At work, or in your neighborhood, or in your family, or in your social network? Who is God putting on your heart? Or another clue may be, again, who is God drawing you to? Who do you like? You kind of hit it off. That may be a sign that you're assigned to that person. Be open to the Spirit because there may be a divine appointment sitting right next to you at school or in a restaurant or on a job or at the supper table. Let the Spirit guide you and the first place he guides you is he starts touching your heart with his heart and you start caring about people the way he cares about people and you start loving people and you start praying for them and you feel the burden and then you wait on the Lord while you're listening and loving and doing all that stuff it doesn't it's not brain surgery and it's not as hard as we've made it. it. We've made it way too hard. Okay? Let the Spirit move. And you flow with the Spirit. I'd like the worship team to come forward. I'd like the intercessors to come forward. And by the way, before we end this service, I, if, if, you, if you don't know the Lord, now's as good a time as any. We, we'll, we'll pray with you about that. Or if you want to know more, just let us know. We'll set up a one-to-one -one meeting, anything like that. But for now, you know, we are going to open the altar, and we will pray for you about anything. Would you stand as we sing our final hymn?